Amen. All right. As the ushers come by, uh, we're going to get started today. Again, if we haven't met, my name is Benjamin, one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace Church. And we've been walking through um, a series here this spring, starting in the new year, going all the way through Easter and April um, through the Gospel of Luke. And I've been loving this because Luke is one of the biographies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, uh, commonly known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and the reason why we are walking through this is because many times we wonder, you know, what is, what is God really like? Does he, does he really love me? What does God value? What does God want in my life? What does God want in the lives of those around us? And if we want to know what God is like, we just simply need to look at what Jesus did, what he taught, who he loved. And so as we walk through uh, this, this series, um, we've been kind of discovering more and more who Jesus is, what he valued, who he loved, what was important to him, and also what it means to follow him. Last week, Pastor Josh in chapter 9 uh, walked us through what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Which, which, of course, Jesus at this point I mean, is terrible at PR. That's not how you get people to follow you. You say, man, it's going to be really hard. You're going to have to deny yourself. It's going to take a lot of sacrifice. And here's the idea. God's grace is free because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, right? But, but this isn't like just a, a spiritual thing. This is a thing thing. We all know this. In order to say yes to something, we, we have to say no to other things. And so in order to say yes to Jesus, we, we have to say no to other things. And Jesus taught us, and, and, and through his words, he taught us that to follow him means to deny ourselves, to deny our comforts. And many times, it can be very uncomfortable to follow Jesus and say yes to him. And it's important to know that where we were last week, chapter 9 in, in Luke's gospel, represented kind of a turning point in, in the gospel of Luke as, as Luke is kind of narrating what is happening. And, and what's going on is, is Jesus is beginning to be more transparent about why he came and who he is. That he is divine, that he is the son of God, that, that he is the rescuer, the Messiah. But in addition to that, that he is going to give his own life for this mission that he came on. And this became very, very unpopular. In fact, this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry that's, that's described where the crowds that would come before, and they saw his healings, and they saw uh, what he was doing, and they were amazed, and they were amazed by his teaching. And then his popularity grew. At this point, his popularity actually starts to shrink. Because nobody wants to, to, to be told, listen, if you want to do this, you're going to deny yourself. You're going to say no to yourself. You're going to say no to your own comfort. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to pull those out. Go to Luke chapter 10. Uh, if you have a phone, you love to use the YouVersion app on your phone, you can pull that out. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you forgot yours, um, there's a white Bible underneath your chair. If you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that home, uh, put your name in it, bring it back, use it. That's what it's there for. We'd love for those to walk out the door. And, and, and what Jesus did last week is not only did he begin 
kind of telling us why he came and, and, and who he is and what it means to deny ourselves. But he also started a trek. He started a journey towards Jerusalem. In the passage um, between where we were last week and where we'll be this week, it says that, that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is on his final journey towards Jerusalem where he will eventually be betrayed, arrested, and convicted in a sham trial and hung on a cross to die. And right now he's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and so he's going to make about a 100-mile trek. And on the way, as he's talked about what it means to follow him and to deny ourselves, on the way he's going to visit every single town he can between where he is, 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem. It's going to be a journey that takes several months. He's not like on a straight line. He's going to stay in some towns for a while. And that's where we pick up the action today. Chapter 10, verse 1 in the Gospel of Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him, and two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, just to, to kind of give you a heads up about where we're going today, I want to lay out the idea that we're going to be talking about today. And the idea is this, that God sends us as gospel-focused messengers of the gospel. Is that redundant? Yeah, a little bit, but I'm the one with the microphone, okay? God sends us as gospel-focused messengers of the gospel. Here in this first verse, we see the very beginning of that statement. God sends us. Jesus sends out before him 72 people, and Jesus sends you and me. Now, some of you are really sharp, and you're reading this, and you're thinking, Benjamin, okay, it doesn't say that God sends all of us. It says God sent 72. I'm pretty sure I'm not included in that 72. Well, when Jesus sent 72, and not only in the moment, but also when those who were reading this, who were familiar with the Hebrew Bible, and especially familiar with, with the Old, Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, their minds would immediately go back to Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, there is a listing of all the known people groups, all the known nations of the world at the time. And you know how many there were in that list? 72. And so when somebody hears this, and, and when he was sending out 72, it would set off kind of a, alarm bells, like, oh, I've heard this before. It's kind of an, an echo. And the idea is this, that this is the beginning of sending out his own followers to reach the world. In the, in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, in fact, um, the, the book of Acts with, was meant to be uh, kind of paired with the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke he wrote describing Jesus' life. And the book of Acts he, he wrote to describe the ministry of the early church. Luke describes the last conversation that Jesus has with his followers before he ascends into heaven, after he's died, after he's risen again from the dead. And he says, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said, this message is not just for here. This message is not just for Judea. This message is not just for Israel. And when Jesus sends the 72, there's echoes where he said, yeah, I know what that means. This is the beginning of something bigger than just a hundred-mile journey between where Jesus is and where he's going to die. God sends us. Now, the problem is, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself, if we look at our lives, we look at our calendars, we look at our priorities, for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, we don't really believe this. You might say, listen, Benjer, I'm not called to go halfway around the world to India, okay? 
I've heard how they went to the bathroom in that little village, and it's just not for me. Okay, I'm not, I'm, God's not sending me. I'm right here. I was born in Utah. I moved to Utah, and this is where I'm staying. You know, I got my job. Listen, if you've got a neighborhood, God has sent you. If you've got a workplace, God has sent you. If you walk your kids to school and you hang out with other moms or dads around the school, God has sent you. If you have a softball team, if you coach kids, if you're a teacher, if you have friends, God has sent you. And that is where he has sent you. Just be totally transparent. I was completely convicted of this this week. Because if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, so... um, I don't like to talk to people a lot. I'm an introvert, love my space. We've got this amazing thing. We moved a little over a year ago to to come serve down here, and we have this this thing that we didn't have before at our house. It's amazing. You know what it is? It's an automatic garage door opener. It's awesome. So I I come home, all right, back into my garage. You know, I I flip on the garage door opener, and it, it opens up, and I back in, and then it closes. I don't have to talk to anybody. In my old house, I had to park in the driveway and get to my front door as soon as possible before anybody would see me. And Jennifer asked me, as we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, my wife, and, and she said, listen, let me just ask you a question. How many friends have you made that don't go to Flourishing Grace since you moved down to Davis County? And I thought, well, you know, we invited some neighbors to some things and, you know, brought somebody. But the reality is, in terms of being sent and investing in somebody's life, it came a blank. The thing is, we, we hear this and we think, okay, so where is God sending me next? And we forget that God has already sent us here. Wherever you are, God has sent you. Now, may God send you somewhere? Is, is there a possibility that God will say, listen, I want you to go to this particular area because I have something for you there? Or maybe God will call you, you know, we are going to be a church that is uh, birthing other churches, that's planting other churches. Maybe the next time we start a new church, God will call you there. Yes, that's a possibility. But don't get mixed up and think that because you're not traveling somewhere that God hasn't sent you. God has sent you where you are. The question is, are you listening to that? Second part of the statement, God sends us as gospel-focused messengers. Verse 2. And he, Jesus, said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages, and do not go from house to house. God sends us as gospel-focused messengers. What does that look like? What does it mean to be gospel Focused. Well, well it, what's interesting is when you read through this passage that we're looking at today, just to, to fast forward to the end, Luke never describes really what actually happens as they go from town to town. We, we get to hear a little bit of the results, 
But Luke's main focus on this is really Jesus' instructions to the 72, because really they're Jesus' instructions to us as well. So what it means to be gospel-focused is, first of all, it means to act with a sense of urgency, right? Jesus says that, that the laborers are few. There's, there's this harvest, and we might be thinking, well, what does that mean? Are we all supposed to be farmers? In, in Jesus' day, when, when a landowner came to harvest time, you know, usually throughout the year there were a certain number of employees. But when harvest time came, there was this sense of urgency, Because there was only a matter of weeks, if not days, depending on the weather, to get those crops out of the field and safely into storage. And if you didn't do that, you lost a whole bunch of money. And that took a lot of manual labor to do. And the landowner would hire as many people as he possibly could. And then when that wasn't enough, he would go go hire the people that he initially didn't think would do a good job. There was this sense of urgency. I mean, we got to get this, this harvest in. We've got something to do. Everything else on the priority list all of a sudden went down, and this rose to the top. There's a sense of urgency. Now, let me just be very careful. Followers of Jesus, let me talk to the follower of Jesus in the room. If you're not a follower of Jesus, somebody cute invited you, whatever it is, promised you lunch, you're welcome to listen in, but this is just for those who would call themselves followers of Jesus. This doesn't give us permission to be pushy. A sense of urgency doesn't mean that we act rudely. Honestly, we do that a little bit too often, usually behind a keyboard on a social media account. Okay? What this means is that when you look to the priorities of our life, the priority of being a messenger of God's message goes right to the top. There's this sense of urgency. And and what does that look like for us? All of us have somebody in our life that has popped into our mind probably this morning as we've been talking about this. And somebody that we've been putting off inviting, somebody that we've been putting off having around our dinner table, somebody that we've been putting off where we realize, man, I know what's going on in their life, and and I know what Jesus did in my life, and I think Jesus can do the same thing in their life, but I just, you know, the the right time hasn't come up. Maybe, Maybe I'll invite them to Easter. Or maybe we'll talk about it when nobody else is around. No, there's a sense of urgency. To be a gospel-focused messenger means to realize what God has done in our life and to act with a sense of urgency at bringing that message. Second thing it means is, is to be completely dependent on God. Did you notice how Jesus described how he was sending them out? I mean, again, Jesus was terrible at PR. This guy needs an advertising agency because you know, he's like, okay, I got a job for you. We're gonna, I'm going to send you out. And they're like, man, I'm really glad to be asked to do this. This is really good. What, what's it going to be like, Jesus? Well, I'm, I'm going to send you out as, as lambs among wolves. Right? To us, that's kind of an interesting picture. But to them, they've seen what wolves do to lambs. And so what, what Jesus is saying is, say, imagine a pack of wolves. Imagine a wilderness where, where it's run by wolves. Um, and imagine some sheep going through there. That's about what you're doing. The odds are extremely high against them, are, are extremely low against them. They are facing difficulty. This is going to be hard. And for them, this was literal. Because remember, Jesus, his popularity was waning Because it's much cooler to see somebody healed and to hear just really cool messages than it is to be told, listen, if you want to follow me, it's going to require you saying no to other things. But of course, right, since since Jesus loved his followers and and he's sending them out as as lambs among wolves, of course he sent them with, with plenty of resources to get the job done, right? What does he say? Oh, he says the opposite. No money bag. 
No extra money. No knapsack. No place for supplies. No extra sandals. You can have the ones on your feet, but don't carry any with you. You're going to be totally dependent on the hospitality of those who are willing to hear my message. Why does he do this? To be a gospel-focused messenger means to be totally dependent on God. Why? Because the outcome is not up to us. We aren't the ones, as we go out, we are not the ones who are doing the saving. Jesus does. Do you remember in the very first verse? Their job was to go from town to town and introduce people to Jesus, prepare the way for Jesus. That's all we're doing. Jesus is the one who will eventually hang on the cross. Jesus is the one doing the saving. And so God, in his wisdom, sets this up to remind us that it is God working, not us. That yes, we are against great odds, but that's okay because it is God who is working and not us. And, and to do this means to be totally dependent on God. Have you ever felt totally inept when it comes to sharing about Jesus with somebody? I know I have. I know I've messed it up. Have you ever t- felt totally inadequate for this job? I know I have, right? It's easy when there's a microphone, right? Because you don't have to talk back to me. When somebody starts talking back to me and asking questions, man, I start to say just stupid things come out of my mouth. I mean, honestly. What if they ask me questions I don't know the answer to? You know what? They probably will. What if they get upset and I don't know how to respond? Well, they probably will, and you probably won't know how to respond. Be totally dependent on God. You lack the resources to save people because you're not the one saving them. Jesus, with infinite resources, by his blood, is the one who saves. Last way that we're gospel-focused is, is that we are not in it for ourselves. Jesus says, remain in the same house. You can, you can have the hospitality of those who, who, who are willing to listen to this message, but don't go from house to house. What does that mean? Not supposed to say hi to everybody else? No. In Jesus' time, and in middle, all of Middle Eastern culture, ancient Middle Eastern culture, hospitality was a very high priority. That is, somebody, a traveler, would come to your house from out of town and say, man, I need a place to stay for the night. I need, I need hay for my donkey. I need some food. You would be obliged to help them. That was part of the value. The problem is there were people who took advantage of this, and they would literally, in the same house, go from house, same town, go from house to house until they wore out their welcome in one place and then go to another place and say, I'm just a poor traveler. Go to another place and say, oh, man, that's a bigger house. I'm going to go over there. And they would abuse the system. And Jesus says, listen, don't wonder what's in it for you. Now, what does that look like for us? For me, and maybe some of you in this room, but, but when I came to faith in Jesus when I was in college, um, I wanted to know that what I was putting my trust in was, was real, that, that Jesus really rose from the dead, that I could really trust the Bible. And so I began to learn about what's called apologetics, which is really just the, the logical defense of the Christian faith. And, and, and quite frankly, I, I, I love it, and, and I've become quite good at it. And the problem is, sometimes I'm more interested in winning an argument, winning a debate, than I am about helping somebody understand who, understand who Jesus is. And don't think people can't feel that when that turn happens. What might it be for you? Maybe for you... 
you kind of pick and choose who you invite to church, right? When you're, you're handing out those invite cards at Christmas Eve or at Easter or for the chili cook-off, there's a couple cubicles you miss. It's a couple houses you don't talk to. It's a couple friends at your kid's school. You're like, ah, maybe next time. You know, what's in it for me? Well, I want people who are like me to come to this church. No. Jesus has never asked what's in it for you. This isn't about our comfort. This is about sharing about the same grace you and I have received. What we haven't talked about yet is what the gospel means. God sends us as gospel-focused messengers of the gospel. Starting in verse 8, Jesus says, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. This was Jesus' message. The kingdom of God has come near to you, which for them was, was just mind-blowing because for them, they had to approach God. For them, they had been taught for years and years and years that in order to approach God, you had to follow certain laws, and when you didn't, you had to make sacrifices until you could, and there were all these steps to get to God. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And of course, us on the other side of that, and on the other side of, of Jesus' sacrifice and his, his resurrection from the dead, we realize that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, that he came to us, that he is God with us, Emmanuel. The gospel is just simply, though there's many facets, that we were broken, that we were dead, and Jesus came near to us died for us, rose again from the dead, that we can be with him forever. The thing about that is, it leaves us all with a choice. Right? A gift. Think about a gift. The last time you got a, a gift. When you're given a gift, and it's really a gift, and it's a free gift, it's wonderful, but it's not yours until you open it. It's the same way with Jesus. Jesus has given us a gift, and we don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. He has, he has died for us to cleanse us from our sin, from our brokenness, that we might live with him forever, but we have to open that gift. And Jesus says everybody has a choice about whether to open it or not. He says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know that this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, that sounds like, oh, man, isn't Jesus telling them to be jerks? I mean, isn't that kind of like thumbing your nose at somebody? Like, oh, I'm wiping off the sand of your streets. I don't even want that on my, my feet. Well, this meant something very particular for, for the Jewish people that Jesus was talking to and that the 72 would be go, going to be visiting. You see, when somebody who was Jewish, who, who worshipped the one true God, would go to another town where it was a Gentile town and they didn't worship the one true God, they wanted nothing to do with that town. They, they had to go there. They had to conduct business. There was nothing, no way around it. But when they left, they made sure to wipe off this, this, the sandals, the bottom of their sandals, so that not even the dust of a Gentile town would cling to them. And so what Jesus is communicating through this is that, listen, if you say no to Jesus, then you don't know the one true God. In fact, he, he goes on and he says this, I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. God brought judgment on Sodom. And then he goes on, woe to you, Chorazin. This is, this is a 
town in Judea. This is a Jewish town. Where do you Bethsaida? Philip was from Bethsaida, one of the followers of Jesus, one of the original apostles. For if the mighty works were done in you, mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile towns, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Right? This, for somebody who was listening to this, who, who was part of the Jewish culture and religion, would say, no, this is not true because we, we are God's true people, right? Because we're Israelites. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Where you were born, who you know, who you hang out with does not determine whether you have peace with God. It is only whether you've said yes to Jesus and his gift of dying on the cross for you. I mean, Capernaum. Capernaum. You remember a couple of weeks ago when Jake talked about the healing that happened in Capernaum, the, the centurion's daughter, and then the woman on the way? I mean, amazing stuff, right? That was in Capernaum. Remember the, the paralytic lowered down that we talked about? So the, his friends cut a, a hole in the roof and, and lowered him down because there was no way to get in the door so that Jesus could heal him. And Jesus said, man, this is amazing faith. These are all towns that saw Jesus do incredible things. These are all towns that said, man, isn't Jesus great? I just, I just want to applaud Jesus. I'm just really glad that he's here. Proximity to Jesus Proximity to those who follow him do not equal a saving relationship with Jesus. And that is the message of the gospel. It is not, we are okay on my own. And, and for you, it might be something different. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might say, listen, I've got a good job. I'm fine. Or, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty decent human being. I'm not perfect. I was, I was born in this church. I was born in another church. And, you know, I went to Sunday school and the whole thing. I checked off. I'm fine. Jesus says, no, you're not fine. Because it's not about proximity to me, Jesus says. It's not about applauding me when I do great things. It's about whether you've really handed your life over to Jesus. Proximity to Jesus applauding Jesus, proximity to those who follow him, do not equal a saving relationship with Jesus. Saving relationship with Jesus means handing our lives over to him. In verse 16, he says, the one who hears me, hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. To reject Jesus, say, no, I don't need you, means to reject God himself. And when we reject God, God says, okay. That's the way you want it. That's what hangs in the balance. Now, again, Luke doesn't tell us the details about what happened. But we do get to hear the celebration afterwards. The 72, verse 17, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, this doesn't mean that, that they're always going to be unscathed. What he means is that you are safe with me because you trust in me. In fact, he told his followers, in this world you will have 
trouble. He even told a few of them, he said, listen, you're going to be arrested and you're going to suffer. So it doesn't mean that we are never going to be uncomfortable or experience difficulty. What it means is that no matter what happens in that difficulty, as we seek to tell people about Jesus, we know that we are safe in God because of what Jesus has done for us. In fact, in verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in this success. Whatever that is for you, do not rejoice by what you have done for God and what, what God has done through you. Do not rejoice in your successes, but that spirits are reject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And there's a couple important things behind that. The first one is this. May we never get to a place, Lord and Grace, hear me well, may we never get to a place where we've been around Jesus long enough and we've told enough people about Jesus and we've cleaned ourselves up, and may we never get to a place where we somehow communicate or believe that we are better than those that we are trying to tell about Jesus. May we never spend so many years in God's grace that we, never, that we somehow forget and we never really remember that we daily are just as in need of God's grace as anybody else. We're on the same playing field. May we never rejoice about our religiosity. May we never rejoice in, in how cleaned up we get. May we never rejoice that, that we're much better at hiding sin than other people. Because let's be honest, we're all there. May we rejoice that we have been saved by nothing but the blood of Jesus, and that's the same as anybody else. As the saying goes, we are just blind beggars teaching other beggars where to find bread. Second thing is this. As we rejoice that our names are written in heaven, we remember that the great triumph, the great triumph is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us and in us. It is God working. And isn't that really, just as we get to the end of this passage, isn't that really our motivation? Isn't that why we tell people about Jesus? This week I was thinking back. Some of you know my story. I, I didn't become a follower of Jesus until I was in college. And this week I was thinking about all the people who, in, who God brought into my life and intersected with my life along my journey to Jesus. Before I was born, my dad was diagnosed with a terminal illness and he died when I was three. And when he found out he had a terminal illness, when he found out that he had a cancer that would kill him, he went back to church. And he had been an, an alcoholic and he had kind of cleaned himself up and he had been self-sufficient, but he realized at that point, even cleaning himself up, he needed God. And he went back to church and he gave his life to Christ. And after he passed away, I think my mom just got tired of bringing us all to church because we would fight it because we didn't really, you know, my, my older siblings didn't really grow up very much going to church except for those three years and so didn't really go very much. But had it never been for my dad accepting Christ, 18 years in the future, I never would have wondered when I'd made a mess of my own life, I never would have, I wouldn't have wondered, man, maybe I, maybe I should go back to church. I actually found myself in the same kind of church that he accepted Christ in. And then there's Matt. Matt was my, uh, my best friend in middle school and high school, and he was a follower of Jesus, and he was never super vocal. He didn't have all the answers, 
But he showed me what it meant to follow Jesus. I didn't know that's what he was doing. I didn't know that he probably wouldn't have named it that way. But, but all I knew is that my life was a mess. But, but Matt is a lot better person. That there's something different about him. He wasn't perfect. But he didn't treat girls the same way I did. And he didn't party every single weekend. And when I needed a ride, he would drive me home. And then there was Coach Miley, Mike Miley. After basketball practice, sometimes he would just talk to me about, geez, I didn't want to hear anything about it. But he would say, man, look, can we just hang out and chat about this? And then there was the Young Life leader. I don't remember their name, but I was invited to this, this Bible study, kind of non-denominational youth group called Young Life. And I made fun of this youth pastor's games. I was only there because there were girls there. And I, I, was, I was that teenager that was just, oh, we're not playing this game, just totally messing with it. Which is why God probably made me a youth pastor so I could see what that feels like. And then when I got to college and I realized I needed, I needed God and I didn't know where to go, there was Bethany. Bethany was a hockey player. She was a goalkeeper. And she invited me to my first InterVarsity Bible study. InterVarsity is a, a college ministry. And when I got there, I didn't know anything. I had a little Gideon's Bible. I didn't know where anything was, but I had a, met somebody named Jim. And Jim would eventually become my roommate. And then I made even more friends around that. And then there was Peter. Peter was a youth pastor who, who met me at church, and I didn't really know anybody. He said, hey, why don't you come hang out with high schoolers with me? And he taught me what it meant to follow Jesus. And when I fell, I fell hard, and he taught me what grace meant. And taught me how to really accept God's grace. I think about all the names and the people that God sent into my life. They didn't have to move halfway around the world. Like some of them probably didn't even know they were sent. But God sent them as gospel-focused messengers of the gospel. Where has God sent you? Where right now have you closed yourself off or maybe neglected or maybe put off or say maybe tomorrow or maybe I'll invite them to Easter? Where have you closed yourself off to where God has said, no, I've sent you here and I have much for you to do. Not because you're so great, but because my grace is so amazing and I want to share it with these people and in my wisdom I've chosen you and I've sent you with this message. Where has God sent you? As a local church, uh, we have a mission, mission statement, and really the, the mission statement of every local church should be about the same because it, it comes from Jesus. And for us, we express it this way, that we are leading people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. And I think it's super easy sometimes to hear that and say, yeah, that's what we do as a church. That's what we do as an organization. Or that's, that's the person with the microphone's job. That's what the leaders do. It's what the, 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 the leaders of the kids do for my kids. No. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the church, and God has given you this mission. He has sent you to be a gospel-focused messenger of the gospel. We are not here just to have some great music fill up our, our spiritual kind of tank on a Sunday morning and then it gets low and then we come back on a Sunday and it gets high. 
Or maybe we, you know, we're in a small group because you know, it just feels good to have friends. We are here because God has sent us. We have small groups, not just so we have the same group over and over again and week after week, but so that we can make room for others because God has sent us. This is what we're doing. This is who we are as a church, and this is who we are as followers of Jesus, not because we are so great, but because God's love for us is so great. And because the kingdom of God has come near, God sent his son Jesus to die for you and me, and three days later he rose again. And because of that, you will not taste death. Isn't that a message worth repeating? Isn't that a message worth going somewhere for, even if it means to our next door neighbor? Or having lunch with that person in your office that you know is struggling, or maybe having coffee, inviting that, that, that mom for coffee that you know the marriage is difficult and they don't know what to do. Isn't that worth stepping outside of our comfort zone? Isn't that worth saying no to ourselves and dying to ourselves and denying ourselves. Isn't that worth denying our own comfort? May this be who we are as a church. Flourishing grace, where has God sent you? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Thank you. Thank you for Dad. Thank you for Matt. Thank you for Coach Miley and for Peter and for Bethany and for Jim. God, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me, to die for us, because your grace and your love is so great. May we not be a holy huddle. May we not be a closed-off circle that just enjoys our people. We just enjoys people who just look like us or who believed like us, but that we would open the circle because we know that your grace is big enough. God, for that one person on our mind that we know that you have been pushing us towards, even sending us to give us the courage even though we face great odds, and even though we feel like we are inept and have no resources, God, remind us that you have sent us simply to introduce the world to Jesus. God, we pray for our friends who don't know Jesus. We pray for our families, for our spouses, for our kids who don't yet know Jesus. We pray for those that you haven't even brought into our life, but they are coming, and, and, and you have brought them into our life, God, not because we are so great, but because your grace is so great. God, we pray for those people, and we pray for us. God, we're going to mess this up. We're going to say the wrong thing. We're not going to know the right answers. We're going we're gonna to do something wrong. And so, God, I thank you that it is not dependent on us or our success or our abilities, but it is dependent on you and your grace and the blood of your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Let all the people say, amen.